0: Uh, we're reading tonight from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 to 11, verse 1. That's in page 929 of your Pew Bibles. For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the cloud and that they all passed through, through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. And do not grumble, as some of them did, and were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Therefore, my dear friends, Flee from idolatry. I speak to sensible people. Judge, Judge for yourselves what I say. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. Consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything or that an idol is anything? No, but the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than here? I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put, you before, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours, for why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ."
1: Thanks, Ethan. All right, friends, have keep that passage open in front of you. Uh, we're trekking through this part of God's Word. Obviously, there's a lot in there. Uh, we're going to see what it is that God has to say to us this evening. I'm going to pray because we're asking the Holy Spirit to do our work as we open up uh, God's Word. So please do pray with me. Our good and our gracious God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that even though written 2,000 years ago and to a particular people in a particular time that it contains your truth and is helpful for us even in this moment today. And Father, we're talking about a lot of physical and spiritual things tonight. And so I pray that you work in us by your spirit. May my words be yours and just work in us, uh, unravel the things in our heart, help us to discern what it that is you're trying to say through your word, uh, whether we're in the room or across the screen. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When someone walks into your house and they uh, look at your dining table, what kind of things do they see? What kind of things are on your dining table? Well, it's not on your dining table, but like, in your dining room and in your kitchen or in your lounge room. What kind of things are there? Right? If you came to my house, uh, and say it's not when you're invited, you just like, come over and it's a bit of a mess, you'll see all sorts of things that are on our dining table. Right? You have our scribbles of the day, you have our potential holiday plans, you've got our kids' rummagings, you've got mess... Basically, you've got things that are just on public display, right? It's just the things of our life, the hums and drums of our home. But the dining table is also a place of our conversation, a place of your conversation too, where you meet people and you engage, you chat with your family and people who come over. It's a public space. It's a a place of gathering and conversation. But then you've got the closet. Now, if you're in my house, upstairs is a bit of a no-go. There's nothing special up there, but... You know, downstairs is free reign, but upstairs is a bit more private. And especially if you go into the closet, there's nothing really overly secret in there, but it's, it's a personal space. Like in your home, your closet is a personal space. And our life is like that. We have things which are quite public and ab- out and about that we're proud of or just part of our life. And then we have things which are quite personal. Things that perhaps we're ashamed of or things that we hold close to us. We have things that are in our closet and on our dining table. And as we talk and we think about idolatry, this is exactly or a way to express how idolatry happens in our life. There are things that we idolise which are hidden, that are deep within, like in our closet. And there's things which are just on public display. Things which we chat about are open and for discussion and things that um, we might be ignorant to. Because idolatry so easily creeps into our life. And this passage tonight steps into and presses on that very issue. The danger of idolatry, both things in our personal life and things that are out in the open, on our metaphorical dining room table. And so that's what we're going to explore tonight. The nature and the danger of idols and then how to destroy them. What on earth that has got to do with Jesus? And so we're going to dive into uh, this section of letter in 1 corinthians and so with that we need to dive back into the world of corinth now we've been exploring corinth a lot for the last couple of weeks and, and last year as well so just very briefly you recall that the culture of corinth is full of idols all the kind of greco-roman world at that time was there was heaps of gods for every part of society. Um, they functioned in like caring for the spiritual and physical world, and people would worship them in all sorts of ways. They were kind of like department leaders. Like, you know, the front bench politicians in our world, they got all a bit of a ministry. That's like the idols and the gods of the Corinthian day. Right? You've got Epaphrodite for love and beauty and romance and sex. And you've got Artemis for agriculture, business, wealth. You've got Apollo for the arts. And for healing, Uh, sorry, I said Artemis was for wealth, sorry, for health. Artemis is for wealth, Apollo is for health. And then Athena, the god of war. So you pray to Athena for victory. Basically, they had heaps and heaps of gods, but they just represented everyday aspects of life. Or everyday aspects of human desire, and a god was attributed to it. And a fundamental part of ancient life was that you worship those gods. You went to the temple, or you had a festival where you'd sacrifice food and all sorts of things to appease those gods, or to get what they could give—whatever was on your heart's desire. You go to that god so that they can give it to you. Now, in Sydney, in our enlightened Western society, we kind of look at that and think it's all a little bit silly, a little bit ancient, and uh, yeah, not really how we think about life. But our desires are still very human, the same as the Corinthians' desires were human. And their desires are the same desires that grip our heart, individually and culturally, even if we're not bowing down to wooden statues. See, we might not physically bend the knee to Epaphrodite, but we will be driven or can be driven to depression and to eating disorders, excessive use of the gym by concerns of our body image or we're driven by lust and we degrade others and degrade ourselves in the pursuit of the idols of sexual expression and sexual experience we might not beat the drum to athena but we want to beat others we want to be the best in education and we want to have beat others in a competitive career or enterprise i might not have a little statue to artemis in my house But greed and saving and having security in my finances are never far away. We are readily, willingly, and compulsively. We make sacrifices to appease the desires of our hearts in order to experience something, in order to experience the good life. We don't spiritualize it like the Corinthians do. We just call it living our best life. We call it the pursuit of happiness And we commit idolatry to get there in basic terms idolatry is this idea of putting something in the place of god that's what it looks like to actually define idolatry as we think about defining idolatry uh, the best place to look at that is in the bible the old testament is full of stories about uh, idolatry and so when we did judges that was all throughout it and if you look pretty much in any part of the old testament when god Corrects or rebukes the Israelites, it's for two things. It's idolatry or social injustice. Those things are just constant throughout the Old Testament, heaps of pictures. In the most basic terms, it is putting something in the place of God, asking something of something else that only God can give. Now, in the New Testament, there's two particular verses that stand out. You've got Ephesians 5, verse 5. It says, For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person, Such as an idolater has inheritance in the kingdom of God. That's idolatry. Immoral, impure, greedy people, or that action. And in Colossians 3, verse 5, Paul will say, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual morality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. These things are idolatry. That's pretty heavy, right? that those things, those kind of things of the heart, which express themselves in action, they're the idols. Now, in our modern culture, it is different to the Corinthian culture, uh, even if there there are some similarities. And Tim Keller has, I think, one of the better uh, explanations of what an idol is. As you just track with what he says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek, Uh, That only God can give you. Like an idol is whatever you look at, whatever you say in your heart of hearts, if I have that thing, my life will have meaning. My life will have value. And then I'll know that I'm significant and secure. Does anything come to your mind? These things that we commit to that give us value and significance, that could be an idol of our life. Now, Paul is going to address that and hit that uh, head on. Now, if you remember, as we catch our bearings in the letter, the food sacrifice to idols has been the, the context of the discussion since chapter 8. He's kind of going to close it here in the section that we've read, but there's this huge section about food sacrifice to idols. And so far, Paul has just been talking about the food and basically said the, whatever the food itself is not sinful. If you eat it, if you don't eat it. What matters is who you eat it with, where you eat it. Um, But what he's going to go and say here is sure, the food itself isn't of spiritual significance in that regard, but don't think that idolatry is okay. Idolatry in itself is an absolute no go. He wants to make that certain, uh, that there can be no confusion. And so he begins with a story. He begins begins with the story of the Israelites, and that's where we pick up where we're reading in verses 1 to 5. He talks about how the Israelites were saved by God. There was, he didn't say, but through Exodus, uh, from Egypt, and then through the Red Sea. That's where he starts. Through the Red Sea, they're liberated, saved by God, and then God provides for them. He gives them food and water, uh, which you can read about in Exodus and then in Numbers. And then he's saying, uh, so he's basically saying there are saved people and that God has provided for them. And so Paul, in saying this to the Corinthians, is saying, you're just like them. Even if you are now this side of Jesus, there is a lot of similarities. You both have a redemption story. Both on an Exodus story and experience. You've both experienced the presence of God, the spirit in your midst. And you have the equivalence of baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's what's going on. There's parallel experiences that God has saved you and has provided for you, Corinthian just like the Israelite. No, Baptist church, we're in the same boat. We're with them. We're with the Corinthian in that regard. But Paul says, remember what happened to the Israelites. Verse five, God was not pleased with them. Why? Verse six, they set their hearts on evil things. Paul is going to give a strong warning here. The Israelites' story is not just a nice bedtime story. It's an example for us. Now, when you have a look at verse 6, the wording there is actually quite helpful. Talking about the nature of idolatry, it says, setting your heart on evil things. That puts idolatry in a different light. The Greek word there to relevant epithymia, it means that setting your heart on something else, but to desire, to crave, to long for something, to long for that evil is what Paul is talking about here. And that is idolatry. The Israelites, in a sense, they're not like, oh, we hate you, God. We don't want anything to do with you. No, they are just desired away from God. They're they're called away from him because of their desires. And Paul references four things. First one, verse 7, idolatry. The story is from Exodus 32. Literally, they build a golden calf and bow down to it. In verse 8, sexual morality. The Israelite men, they go off and sleep with the foreign Moabite women. we read about that in Numbers 25. Verse 9, they tested God. Basically, they demanded, God, you've given us this man and this food, but we're not happy with it. We want more. This is not what we're after. Give us something better. Numbers, you read that in Numbers 21. And then verse 10, they grumbled, which just defines the whole wilderness experience. Basically, they're not trusting God. We want more from you, God. We're not happy with what you've done for us. They desired something else, desired something other than God to give them what they thought they needed. And on every and all occasions, the result was devastating, right? It was heavy. As Ethan read it, I don't know if you felt the heaviness of what happened there. Their evil desires desired them away. They committed idolatry, and there was the immediate judgment of God, whether it was the sword, the snake, or the destroying angel. That's significant, and it's heavy. Paul's point is pretty clear. Dismantle and destroy the idols or they will destroy you. Destroy the idols or they'll destroy you. Idolatry is a big deal. So he says in verse 12 if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. But that's not the final word. We read verse 13, which says, No temptation has overcome you, which is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted by beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. There will be desires of our heart. There was desires in the Corinthian heart and the Israelite heart. There's desires in our heart. And they'll entice, they'll grip us. The temptation will be great. You've experienced it. I've experienced it. But God is greater. God is faithful. He's faithful to keep us from falling into those desires, from doing those evil things that our heart might set its desire on. God will not allow the temptation to overwhelm us to be more than we can bear. Now, when we kind of hear that, I think the most time I hear people talk about it, just in casual conversation, is it seems like we're saying that God gives us like an escape hatch, a spiritual get-of-jail card, in a sense, so that the, the temptation won't overwhelm us. Just escape. But here it says to endure it. God is faithful so that we can endure it. The situation itself doesn't seem to change at times. It seems much more like a life jacket. A life jacket or, or a, a life ring. When you're lost overboard at sea and you get chucked a life jacket or a life ring, it prevents you from sinking. The waves might overcome you, you might be treading water, but the life jacket or the ring uh, prevents you from being overcome by the wind and the waves and the sea. I think that's more of what the picture is being painted here. The ability to bear and not succumb to the temptation is not in our strength, but it's in God's strength. And that is the absolute beautiful thing about that image. You think about drowning at sea. You, I've lost all hope in myself, but the life jacket will keep me up. That's like arson temptation. You can lose all hope in yourself, but God is faithful. The confidence is not in our self-discipline, Our confidence is in God's faithfulness to us. He will help us through the power of his spirit to be able to endure the allure to idols because he is faithful. Now also, so what this passage is helping us to do is have confidence, to have faith. The temptations will be there. You'll experience them 100%. But put our trust in God. Hold on to him because he's certainly holding on to us. But then the passage also prods us and pushes us to ask of ourselves, Well, what are our idols? We're not like the Corinthians who are going to go bow down to a wooden statue and have a, a festival. So how can we discern our idols? Now so that definition before, I know it's kind of quick that went through, but maybe that is helpful for you to identify some of them. But perhaps another practical way is to remember that where there's smoke, there's fire. But there's smoke, there's fire. You're in your house, and you see smoke going on, so it's not just a little bit of smoke, not bellowing everywhere, you run outside. but you look for where the smoke is, so you go put out the fire. The smoke is like our sin. If you track that sin down into your heart, or wherever it is is coming from, you'll find the fire, you'll find the idol, the desire there that is in fueling that sin that we're seeking to appease, or that we're desiring? What is that for us? I'll give you an example from my life. Now, I get angry. Maybe it's hard to believe. But I get angry and I get short-tempered. And I'm not talking about road rage. I get angry there too. But I'm talking about when I get angry and dismissive of my family. Selfish and short-tempered. Now, why do I do that? Well, ultimately, because I'm a weak, I'm a sinful person, I need a saviour Jesus, that's why. But if I push it a bit more, that's the smoke, the anger, the self, the, the short-temperedness, that's the smoke. If I track that down, where does it lead me? Part of the reason is because I feel worth, I feel value, I feel significance in my life when I'm being loved and respected. And so when that doesn't happen, my body reacts with my family it can at times be anger, and that's how it expresses itself. I don't like that about myself. I need to confess that sin regularly. But there's an idol in me there that I want their approval, want to be pleased, want to be loved, and I want that more than how God sees me at times. That's the fire. That can be the idol. What is it for you? Where's the smoke that leads to a fire? You could trace your sins down to the source and perhaps you'll find an idol that you're sacrificing to there. That would be an idol in our closet. Something that's a bit private, uh, something that is clearly wrong. Paul is now going to, well, his whole focus really here, and what he's really going to turn to now is the idols that are on our dining room table, the idols that are corporate, socially acceptable. So, as we move into the the next part of the passage, Paul gets to his central point. Verse 14. He says, Therefore, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Flee it. Plain and simple. Not put up with it for a little while. Not tolerate it. Not have it in moderation or push it to the corner. No, flee it. Flee idolatry. Now, of course, in this context, for the Corinthian, the particular issue is around what it looks like to participate in food sacrificed to idols, um, whether they should do it or, or not. And so that's why when you get to verse uh, 16, he starts talking about the Lord's Supper. That's why that's how that section makes sense. Uh, so if you have a look, verses 16 through, to, through the end, uh, he's talking about, um, the way that we have communion, what we do, right, where we break the Lord's bread and we, drink, we break the bread and drink the cup representing Jesus' body and his blood. And there's two essential teachings that come from this section, when, if you have a look, verses uh, 16 to 17. Basically saying there's two things going on. It is union with Christ and union with each other. That's what happens at communion. We unite with Jesus and we're uniting with each other. So if you're going to go to the Lord's table and unite with him, you then can't go to the devil's table and unite with him. That's what's going on when you read verses 18 through to 22, and I'll read that section. It says, Consider the people of Israel. Do those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? Do I mean that the food sacrificed to an idol isn't anything or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices... Of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Heavy, right? Food is not necessarily the issue here. Uh, The issue is who it's being eaten with. As one commentator, Ben Withington, said, he said, it's not the menu, but the venue. It's who you're eating it with. For their case, to eat the sacrifice in the context of the worship, in the context of the sacrifice to the idol, was to participate in the sacrifice itself. To eat it is an act of worship. For them, Paul is giving a super clear command. and It's the same command for us. You can't serve Christ and serve idols. You can't do both things. It would be like supporting the doggies this Friday night and then going to support the dragons. Sorry, the dragons are playing on Friday night. Supporting the dragons on Friday night and then the doggies on Saturday. You just can't do those things. You can't serve God and your idols. Dragons are not God, by the way. (laughs) But don't engage in idolatry, right? Our physical practices have a direct influence on our spiritual health. Our physical and our spiritual life is so intertwined, you cannot disconnect them. They are so interlinked. And it is so dangerous for the Corinthian and for us to engage in idolatry because there is the invitation to demons into our life, to have a seat at our table of life. Another way to read verse 21 is you can't dine at the table of Christ and then dine at the table of the world because the table of the world is the devil's. So don't think that your physical life, what we do, what we think, what we say, has no influence in our spiritual life. They are so intertwined. And friends, we're in a spiritual battle. Ephesians 6, our battle is not against the flesh and blood, but against the powers and the principalities of this world. There is literally a spiritual battle for your body and your soul that is going on. There's dark spiritual forces which are out to take us away from Christ. And Christian, you're not immune Christian, you're the target. And anyone who is on their road towards Jesus or any potential follower of Jesus, and idolatry is at the center of that. So what's the danger? Why is it so important to flee idolatry? In a sense, we've seen two very clear ones. If we don't destroy our idols, we're on the road to judgment of God. And if we don't destroy our idols, we'll compromise our allegiance to Jesus And we're inviting spiritual evil into our life. That's heavy. This is significant. Now, other parts of the Bible also say that our idols also suck life away from us. Jesus comes to give life, but the thief, the robber, comes to steal and destroy. Idols suck our life away. The problem for the Corinthians, and also the problem for us, is that in that corporate public dining room space it is so hard to see it we don't see the danger or we neglect it as insignificant see the corinthians they're thinking they go about this practice what well, doesn't really matter god's above the idols who cares they're not seeing the harm they're not registering it as a big deal i'm not worshipping them in my heart is what they're thinking and we can do the exact same thing even if we express it differently Because we easily and subconsciously, we adopt just the values of our secular culture, which are against God. And we can participate in them. I'm including myself. The gods and the idols of this world, they're many. And close to the top of the list is consumerism and materialism. I know they're fancy words, but just the way that we pursue all things food, clothes, experiences, anything that money can buy. That's just the world we live in. We talk about it almost as like a rite of passage or like a way to fully be human. You've got to experience these things to actually have a full life. Then there's also the philosophies which promote the individual self. Like you deserve it. You do you. Your truth is your truth. All these things in some way, shape or form, they present a way for us to worship something other than God, whether it's ourselves or the thing, whatever it may be. And these are the idols of our dining room table. These are the idols that we will just chat about, that we'll walk through life in, that we'll subconsciously encourage each other in almost in ourselves. and ourselves. That's hard because at times we don't see the problem. We don't see how it can affect our relationship with God. But just look at your bank statements. Elizabeth and I are going through our bank statements. It's a bit scary how much we spend, but also like where we're spending our money Think about the conversations that you have. Think about what's on your Instagram feed. What TikTok videos are coming up. The kind of news that you listen to that is coming up on your social media feeds, whatever it may be. Idolatry is where we're seeking meaning, value and significance in something other than God. And they so easily just become part of our life and part of our conversation. Friends, we need to discern and destroy those idols both in our private and our public life. So how can we do that? What does it look like? How do we actually dismantle and destroy our idols? In a sense, Paul kind of gives us that answer in verses 31 to 33. He says, take the eyes off yourself and put them on God. Look to his glory and to his purposes in the world. Have a read of verse 31 and on. Perhaps one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, from not seeking my own good, but the good of many. Now, of course, there is so much to unpack uh, in that verse. But to highlight how it relates to idolatry, we don't live for ourselves and our idols, but we live for God's glory and for the good of others and to bring others into relationship and experience his kingdom. So when we're confronted with our idols, when we discern what they are through the work of the Spirit and each other, how do we dismantle and destroy them? We look to God and then we repent. We repent of the things. We fall into the loving, merciful arms of Christ. The loving and the merciful arms of Christ. God's grace is sufficient for you. It is sufficient for me. Jesus died. He took the judgment that we deserved. Jesus lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And he's given us forgiveness and life for what we didn't deserve. That's the beauty of the gospel. No idol is too great. No idol is too powerful for Jesus, for his work in our life. He's defeated these things. So we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, to help us let go. And that's what happens when we repent and we throw ourselves onto the beauty and the grace of the Lord Jesus. And the next thing we can do is have Jesus as our overmastering positive passion. When Jesus is our overmastering positive passion, that is how our idols are destroyed. Because when we have something greater, something more beautiful, something more good, and more true, We will chase after that. And we will chase after Jesus because he is those things. Because the only way to free ourselves from those things that are captivated, that are gripping our heart, those destructive idols and gods, is to turn back and turn towards the true and the only God, the living God, the one who's revealed himself on Mount Sinai, the one who came in the person of Jesus, who died on the cross, who rose again in victory, He's the only Lord who if you find him and you abide in him who can fulfill you and the only one if you fail him can truly forgive you. Jesus brings life. He brings life. The idols just steal. When Jesus is our overmastering positive passion, we look at him and the good things that he is and the good things that he's called us to do and they drive us. As Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, we looked at this two weeks ago with Mike Frost. He said, Set your mind on things above. When we set our mind on things that are above, the things of below just pale in comparison. Like if you had a rock with just gold glitter dust on it and then compare it to a nugget of gold, the two just do not compare. When we set our heart on things above to where Christ is seated, the idols of this world just do not compare. Mike Frost, he had that illustration of putting your VR glasses on. You know, he, was, he was doing that a lot, right? We're talking about putting our gospel glasses on. Same, same, right? Whatever is helpful for you to think about, do that. I mean, there's something else, that, a better illustration for you. Hold on to that. Either way, as it relates to our idols, when we apply the gospel to them, they just fade in comparison, and Jesus is far more powerful. He destroys them. We see that they are sucking life away. And they're causing us to sit under the judgment of God. But the gospel in Jesus shows us that we have life in Christ and that he has won the victory for us and there is life in him. So as we allow the spirit to discern our idols, he'll be able to destroy them in us for his glory, for our good. And then we experience the life that God has called us to and so we can be an effective witness for him in the world, both now and to experience his goodness into eternity. So friends, look to Jesus. Set your heart on him. Embrace his gospel. And the spirit will continue to transform you. That's the promise. That's not my promise, that's the promise of God. Because God is faithful. And he'll help you to endure the temptations as they come. For our idols of today and until the end. For God's glory, for our good, and for his witness in the world. Let me pray. God, as we talk about idols, some of these things grip our hearts so deep that we don't even know what weighs up sometimes. But God, in your word, we've seen the great danger of them. And so, Father, we we are sorry. Uh, We repent. We're sorry for the ways we've chased up, things of this world and not of you. And we're so thankful to Jesus that he went to the cross for us. We don't need to fear. But we are called to follow you, to flee idolatry, to put it to death. And so please help us to do that by your spirit and help us to do it with one another so we can love you with all our heart, soul, mind and strength and therefore then to love our neighbour as ourselves. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.